Good afternoon. I'm delighted today to be joined by James Lindsay. Now, James is an author, a thinker, a founder of newdiscourses.com, and is one of the leading voices pushing back against woke ideology, and has done huge amounts of work to, uh, ex to explore and explain just what that ideology is, where it comes from, and, and the threats uh, that it poses. Um, and uh, so, firstly, James, I just want to give the audience a little uh, understanding of how you uh, started to work in this area, what brought you to uh, in, into the realm of being a public intellectual and fighting back against the woke. It's a uh, strange story, honestly. Uh, many people do know that my background originally was in physics and mathematics, in particular mathematics, which I got a PhD in in 2010. Um, and so how does one go from, you know, math to uh, fighting the woke? And the, the short answer is that people were wrong online. And it was very frustrating. So I ended up getting a preview into woke argumentation starting maybe as early as 2011 and 12, seeing people accused of upholding systems of sexism primarily at the time during whatever feminist push was happening. And I, rather than just dismissing this as the ravings of lunatics, uh, decided to look into their academic literature. And so I started to peruse, not terribly seriously, uh, feminist theory literature and gender studies literature starting in you know, the early part of the 2010s. So that in 2016, when an article was written uh, arguing that the science of glaciology needs to adopt indigenous mythology and feminist art projects and things like this. In a high impact factor geography journal, I thought this is extraordinarily alarming. And a colleague of mine named Peter Bogosian and I decided that the only thing left to do, we tried criticizing this, we tried arguing about it, we tried writing articles about it, we found publishing those to be difficult, we found um, that we were often informed that we couldn't have an opinion because we were white men uh, and therefore could not weigh in on this issue. Um, we found that we decided that the only thing we could do is to hoax the academic literature justifying this. So we wrote a fake academic article in 2017 at the beginning of the year uh, titled The Conceptual Penis as a Social Construct, in which we argued that penises are actually socially constructed, not anatomical organs. They cause all of our problems, especially climate change. And this ended up getting picked up by what appears to be a largely predatory journal. A, mon a modest controversy ensued and some both good faith and bad faith criticism flowed in that told us exactly what we would have to do in order to convince a broad public audience that there's a problem in this academic literature. So Peter and I got on the phone and talked to each other and said, well, let's do that. And so we began what was called the Grievance Studies Affair. Uh, it came to be called that. We just called it The Project uh, in, in the summer of 2018 or 17, 2017. And uh, for about a year and a half, we wrote as many fake academic articles as we could in fields like gender studies, feminist theory, fat studies, media studies, and so on, uh, critical race studies and education. And um, we had a large amount of success. We wrote, it turns out, 20 of these articles. Academic articles take a lot of time, typically a couple per year is a good academic career, and we wrote 20 in a year. Um, and we, we ended up having seven of them that were accepted, and seven more were still under peer review when some journalists figured out what we were up to and blew the lid off of our experiment. And so it's probably true to say that either 11 or 12 of the 20 would have made it past peer review and been published, uh, including one of our papers that cited another one of our papers. So we we're actually building out, you know, entire lines of literature, not just one paper. Um, and so in the process of studying that, I became very alarmed with, first of all, what we could get past peer reviewers and into significant journals but also uh, the, the responses of the peer reviewers to some of our more outlandish arguments. Uh, in fact, we argued at one point that we should be abusing students in schools out of their privilege. And uh, through pretty you know, inappropriate methods, like asking the students to sit in the floor and be chained to the floor to experience what it's like to have been you know, subjugated or whatever, and we said that to make it funny, we said that we should do it with compassion. 
and uh, something called Critical Compassionate Intellectualism. And uh, they wrote back to us, the, the peer reviewers wrote back and said, we love the idea, but you can't use compassion. It threatens to recenter the needs of the privileged. And I became very alarmed. It was, it was no longer funny at this point. I, I realized that that's the kind of logic of human abuse that ends in a genocide if allowed to run to its conclusion. Uh, and so I spent a couple of weeks thinking about it. And then I plucked up the courage as one does to ask my wife if I could quit my job and dedicate my life to studying and exposing what I was seeing in this academic literature and the related activism. And it's been a wild ride ever since, more or less. So by the, I guess, middle of 2018, I had given over to committing myself to exposing this um, with, with all available resources. Uh, and that's, so that's what I've done ever since. Well, they're very considerable resources, and I've been I've been enjoying and and getting a, and learning a great deal from the information you've been putting out. We've talked about it on UK Column News, and we've been uh, posting links to a good deal of it as well. Um, but my own um, sort of interaction with this particular world started also many years ago, uh, and it was on Twitter, and and it was in the days where they were called social justice warriors. I, a slightly old-fashioned term now, and uh, I was uh, arguing against this point of view. And I remember a, a Scottish journalist coming back, a, a young lady, a minor Scottish journalist, and she was genuine, genuinely amazed. She said, are, are you really saying that we shouldn't have social justice? She, she couldn't imagine a contrary argument. She couldn't imagine that she was anything other than, than correct. And I think one of the things that you and others have done in, in the in the past number of years has you've changed that they do realize that there's pushback now they do realize there's an opposition back in the early days it was it was sweeping everything before it this philosophy and it's almost as if there was no opposition nobody could stand against it um or at least it took a great deal of determination um and and, and guts to do so there's a lot more uh, resistance now building up, which is which is very encouraging. Um, you've um, written many books. Um, one is the Marxification of Education, and you were good enough to join us in an education seminar just a short while ago. One is on race Marxism, and I just want to briefly before we go on touch on the the aspect of race. Uh, we're having an election uh, for the new first minister in Scotland. The old first minister had to step down because of woke theory, um, because of queer theory, actually. Um, she uh, decided that a trans man was a, a trans woman was a woman. And when uh, a double rapist in Scotland, a very unsavory individual, decided that he was a woman, um, everybody obediently agreed. And he was placed inside a woman's prison, which did bring Fox and Henhouse somewhat to mind. Um, this indefensible position turned out to be indefensible. And for the first time really ever, the First Minister was asked searching questions about definitions and what things meant. And is this is is this person a man or a woman? And and she said, well, she didn't know. She didn't have enough information. Um, the penis not being enough information. And uh, uh, so she wouldn't commit. She just said, well, but but what I know is this individual is a rapist. So briefly, we had three genders in Scotland, men, women, and rapists. And and jokes about Schrodinger's rapist. Could be a man, could be a woman, told the First Minister observes, we, we don't know. Um, and it became ever more indefensible, ever more ridiculous. She had to resign. Um, one of the, probably now the favourite to replace her, is a man of um, Pakistani ethnic origin who is who's infamously, infamously uh, made a speech in Parliament complaining the, about the problem in Scotland as everyone's white, namely everyone's Scots, and all, all the leading people in all the leading organisations, they're all white. And he spat the word with venom and, and anger and rage over and over and over again in this speech. It, it was a very troubling uh, display. I've gone back and tried to question him on what exactly he thinks white means under this context, because I'm aware there are many, many meanings to this. 
so far he's not responding. Um, this uh, rage against the against the white, you've obviously studied this. Could you could you just expand a wee bit more of what you've learned about this particular aspect of uh, of the social justice warrior um, uh, philosophy? Yeah, sure. So so it turns out that. Uh, as the title of my book suggests, that what, what you have in, in what is called critical race theory is uh, a reinvention of Marx's entire ideology, Karl Marx's entire ideology that waged war on the capitalist, on the bourgeois elements of society, so that the proletarian might be centered and raised to a position of power to overcome the uh, abuses of the past. And what they've done is they've exported this idea that uh, economics is the most important basis for bourgeois status in society and imported the idea that race is. So in 1993, a woman by the name of Cheryl Harris, uh, an American legal scholar, wrote uh, a very long law article titled Whiteness as Property, where she explains that whiteness as a, is, is a form of cultural property that white people constructed and erected for themselves to exclude other people from it. And uh, it operates as a form of bourgeois private property that she, she argued. And then she does not say, however, that Karl Marx was very clear about what you do with bourgeois private property, which is that you abolish it. You must abolish access to this form of cultural property. And so what critical race theory, which has probably informed this gentleman I, and I use that word with my tongue in my cheek, it doesn't sound very gentle. Um, what, what critical race theory believes is that the concept of private property or cultural property called whiteness needs to be destroyed. It needs to be abolished and people who have access to it need to be treated uh, as though they have been given unfair advantages in life that have to be taken away from them and redistributed to other people who are more deserving because of their long history of exclusion. It turns out that it also believes that if you are in the position of the excluded, suffering, oppressed individual, that you understand the nature of this property and its consequences, whereas people who benefit from it cannot possibly understand it. Um, you can't understand the harms generated by something you benefit from as their, their claim. But all this is is Marxism that has replaced racial characteristics with class character, or class characteristics, I should say, with racial, racial characteristics. Uh, and the goal is actually to have an excuse using race because in free countries, as it turns out, um, where there is economic mobility, where merit matters, where you can work hard and achieve your dreams. Uh, I mean, speaking as an American, that's literally what we call the American dream. Uh, in countries like that, the economic argument doesn't work very well. Uh, when people believe that they can actually work hard and achieve something, you can't make the economic argument that Karl Marx made because people who buckle down and maybe with a degree of luck, maybe with a good idea and do the hard work, and we all know that chance favors the prepared mind, uh, they can rise in society. So his claim of the interminably oppressed actually just looks like something that whiners say, people who whine and complain. I think you guys say whinge over there. Uh, and and it, it falls on its face. Well, it turns out you can reinvent this argument, whether it's through race, with critical race theory. And in the UK, you have a bigger problem with what's called post-colonial theory. Uh, so you can do it through national origin, for example. Uh, when you described this speech the man gave, what came to mind is, is a man named Franz Fanon, uh, a psychoanalyst from Martinique, uh, a critical psychoanalyst in the 1950s and 60s, who wrote a spate of very radical, very actually violent books the most famous of which is called The Wretched of the Earth, uh, which was in 1962, approximately, I forget the exact date, thereabouts. Uh, and he argues that what's necessary is to bring violence upon the colonizer. And then the, the preface to this book is written by the infamous Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, French existential philosopher and Marxist. And he says, Europe had better listen. These people are going to bring violence to Europe. They're going to take back what they think they are owed for all of the colonization throughout history. And what would be wisest for Europe to do is to lay down their arms, recognize their racism, and accept their claim upon their countries, upon their property, and give it over willingly so that the violence might be minimized. And it seems for whatever reason that Europe 
of all people to decide to listen to, listen to John Paul Sartre on this point and just handed over their nations, handed over their property, handed over their dignity. Uh, but what we're seeing is kind of reinventions of Marxist envy, reinventions of Marxist hatred located in different places, located in different forms of cultural and social property. But all the hatred, all the envy, all the violence, all the entitlement comes with it. And so if I might offer advice, I would advise that anybody who made such a speech should not be made first minister of anything. Uh, in fact, that person shouldn't be even last minister of anything uh, because they do not have the proper attitude to serve a population that they are being entrusted to serve if elevated to that kind of position and will in fact, as always happens with Marxists, will abuse that power to abuse the citizens that they are entrusted to serve. So the best case scenario is some period of suffering followed by another resignation, uh, which is very humiliating. Or um, the worst case scenario is you end up having to live with that for a very long time and a great deal further damage is done to your communities and your country. Well, this is this is uh, this is wise words indeed, Al. And I will send you the, the 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 speech because it's a it's a it's it's certainly quite something to watch. It's so um, unrestrained, um, and the lack of any pushback was also noted because he's speaking there to a ninety nine percent white audience, Scots audience of alleged leaders of society. And uh, no one objected, which was also interesting. Um, there's an element, you, you mentioned Europe, and you're coming at this, despite your beautiful Scottish name, you're coming at this from a, a, an American perspective, obviously. Um, and in America, there is, well, there's a size, there's a, there's a, there's a very substantial country, um, quite a large population, very large land area. And with that comes a certain confidence. And in Europe, the countries are much smaller, they tend to be much more subdivided, they tend to have had a lot of history of being conquered, reconquered. There's more turmoil than the relatively peaceful, stable experience of the United States. Um, I think it's probably the size issue, though, that's, that, that they want to get at here. Countries like Scotland tend to be very keen, Ireland uh, is also an example of this, very keen to be seen to be leading. We are world leading. We want to be leading. And since we've now had defined for us uh, the woke mentality, the um, neo-Marxist worldview, um, the cultural cringe that goes with critical race theory, critical queer theory, all the rest of it, we're going to lead in that. And we so desperately want to be seen as being good, you know, the best of the best and the, the most obedient. It becomes they become the most cowed, the most subservient to this ideology, and and there's not the same pushback. So you'll get more resistance to this in somewhere like Westminster than you do in the Scottish Parliament or indeed the Irish Parliament. Um, uh, now, looking at the Scottish government, what this produces is is something that's 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 maybe six months to five years ahead in surrendering to the woke ideology compared to maybe larger, um, more confident organizations of governance elsewhere in the, in the planet. So we see a very extreme example. Now, their ideology is centered around a couple of words, and I, and I was surprised to find, because I checked out your website, udiscourses.com, which is excellent, and you have a lexicon of, of defining what the words mean, of, of deconstructing or explaining what the Marxist or neo-Marxist understanding of the words mean. Because as you pointed out, as you pointed out many times, they use our vocabulary, but not our dictionary. They use words that we recognize, but the words that actually mean something different. And I was very surprised to find that neither of the words that, that, that the Scottish government build the philosophy around are in there yet. So this is a this is an appeal for you to add yet two more words to your lexicon, but maybe you could comment on these. The first one I've got for you is fairness. This comes up a great deal from Scottish government and and and, and government elsewhere in the UK. Fairness is everything. Do you understand what they mean by fairness? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, fairness for them means equity. It means redistribution. It means looking at the world and believing that it's contoured by power dynamics that are, are intrinsically unfair to certain people. People start at different places in life. Sometimes that's due to uh, immutable characteristics or accidents of birth, such as race or gender or sexuality or whatever else. And they therefore need to be given a leg up. Of course, this is a racist argument or a sexist argument or a homophobic argument that says that these people who are, at last I checked, people uh, can't compete on a level playing field. So they have to have a playing field that's artificially leveled for them. Uh, it's a manipulation of our best instincts to use them against us to apply a redistribution scheme that will always fail in practice. It will always breed resentment. It will always breed uh, under-motivation, demoralization. It will, as we're currently facing a crisis here in the United States where this push has been pushed into our uh, world record setting safety track record in aviation. Uh, there's now a crisis we've had after 20 years of zero near miss accidents in aviation in the United States, we've had something like four in the past like three weeks. And the reason is because they've decided that, you know, certain people need to have for the purposes of diversity and equity for fairness, that they have to uh, give them legs up. So they're hiring kids who have no interest in aviation, no experience in aviation straight out of high school, bringing them into positions like air traffic controller, sometimes pilots, uh, they're doing terribly. Uh, and we've now had, now after about a year into this experiment they've been running so that their ESG scores stay high and their diversity profile looks good. And they look like their industry leaders, like you were talking about, we're now on the precipice, I would wager, uh, of a major air traffic accident that probably will kill hundreds of people and do millions of dollars of damage and untold amount of uh, concern and, and problems uh, because they're pushing for something artificial. They're trying to create what they think is fairness under a definition that misreads reality. All, when, when we say that they, they share a vocabulary but not our dictionary, they've written their dictionary because they misperceive the nature of reality. They don't understand what makes something legitimate. They think that legitimacy is artificial. They tell you this all the time, that, that the bourgeois classes of society erect society in order to sustain themselves, promote themselves, benefit themselves. They don't believe that there's actual, say, competence that's going into what's building out the hierarchies and the systems that we, we operate. They don't understand the fundamentals of legitimacy. So they think that they can make people very fungible. They can take out an expert in, say, aviation and plug in somebody new and just train them to be whatever they need to be in a short amount of time. Uh, and it's completely fungible. And unfortunately, uh, that's not the case. Expertise actually matters, which, by the way, if you'll notice, expertise has nothing whatsoever to do with characteristics such as race, gender, sex, sexuality, et cetera. It's you can do the job or you cannot. You can prove that you can do it or you cannot. But what happens is they lower the standards in the name of fairness because they have a perverse misunderstanding of the way that legitimacy is conferred and created and understood in the world. And that's, and honestly, I think that is the basis of their worldview. The basis of the woke worldview is that they don't know why the system that we have works the way that it does. They wish that it, it favored people that uh, have certain, not, not racial characteristics, but rather certain ideological beliefs that they've tied to racial characteristics or sexual characteristics, such as themselves, uh, theoreticians typically, um, bad ones. And they think that those people should have, they think that they're very, very smart people who therefore should have very, very smart people jobs that it turns out they're actually not competent to do. It's, it's almost like taking what they call the Peter principle, that someone will rise to their level of incompetence in any given firm and uh, intentionally uh, taking that and then pushing it way beyond that. Is it, you know, people who just believe that they are hyper competent because they have read some books or something. Uh, and understand society more clearly should have all the aspects. So for them, fairness is taking our natural desire to see things, to see justice in the world, to see that the, the, your hard work should return, um, you know, a fair compensation. And they're turning it on its head. They're using it against us. They're appealing to our values under a different meaning. 
which is that fairness redistributes so that everybody comes out equal. Our Madam Vice President Kamala Harris has been saying this very explicitly lately, very explicitly on television and interviews that we need to redistribute to make sure that there are equal outcomes. Our um, doddering President um, Joe Biden recently issued an executive order saying that this equity is going to be pushed into every aspect of the federal government, every aspect of American life possible within the reach of our overpowered federal government. And um, the same justification is being given, unfortunately. They, they have a twisted definition of fairness where they believe that the world is unfair as it is for reasons outlined by Karl Marx applied to different topics and that their entitlement complex needs to be satisfied in order to make things more fair. Um, you'll notice that, by the way, it's not actually racial. When Larry Elder ran for governor of California, he was the black face of white supremacy here in the United States. When five uh, police officers, all of whom were black in Memphis recently here in the United States, uh, did a gangland beating and killing of a person, uh, turns out they were hired under one of these diversity and inclusion initiatives. Uh, it turns out that the excuse they gave was that they had in, had been in, ingrained in white supremacy that came down from the institution of policing itself. Uh, so it's not actually anything to do with, with people's characteristics. It's whether or not you satisfy their ideological push or not. And if you do, you should be elevated. If you don't, you should be uh, excluded. And that's exactly what the Soviets did. That's exactly what Mao Zedong did. Um, and the conclusions are going to be identical. Mao Zedong did this in the Great Leap Forward. 55 million people died. Their economy completely collapsed uh, so badly that they even deposed him from power uh, for a period of a few years. So these are, these are the conclusions of this manipulation of the concept of engineered fairness that they're trying to, to, to foist on us. And I urge Scots to open their eyes and pay attention. You mentioned, you know, how Scots want to be leaders and they want to be best at this. You know, America, as a comparison, is the inheritor of Scottish Enlightenment thought. We are a philosophically very Scottish nation. I say that coming from Appalachia, which is a very Scottish cultural region. And we, we hold the Scots up as people who want their freedom, who are bold and brave and courageous, very brave heart kind of. Uh, mentality stereotype, and it's just heartbreaking to see that, that they're they're so easily manipulated in this way. Uh, yes, yes, it is. It's heartbreaking when you're up close to it as well. Uh, just to expand a little bit from that, you you, you explain essentially that the that subverting the normal decisions based on a competence hierarchy produces failure. Um, and I want to explore just a little bit into the into the realms of education, which you've written on extensively. Um, it, to give you an example, I was um, down at uh, an aircraft museum in Southampton some years ago, and they have the Schneider Trophy plane that was uh, designed by Mitchell, the inventor of the Spitfire, and they have the the original plane down there. It's a beautiful thing. And it's it's extremely complex, and and very very clever, and it's a, it's got a strange kind of serrated outer edge. But this is actually um, cooling pipe work on the outer skin of the aircraft to to lose to, to lose heat from the uh, from the engine oil, as as kind of part of the aircraft outer skin. It's a fascinating thing, and I was talking to the curator of the of the museum, and he was explaining how. When he was young, you know, generation, generation and a half ago, he's an elderly man, uh, the, the people who would study, the boys, it would be boys almost exclusively, who would study aviation had lived aviation since they were tiny. They made model aircraft, they made little aircraft that would fly with little motors in them. They joined a local flying club. They, they'd learned how to fly, a, a, you know, a, a tiger moth or something. They would go and study aviation because they loved aviation. And they were passionate about it. He says now people come in from the local local university and college, and they're studying aviation, and they walk through this museum, and they're bored. You can see the disinterest on their face, on their faces. Now, if he's right, 
and there's a fundamental lack of engagement coming through the education system. Um, that will have huge implications for the amount of competence we've got to select from. Um, you've looked at the marxification of education, the changes that have been made to education. Do you see that as a threat to the basic competence of our society? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the goal of education is very rarely now, uh, after this, this change into what they call critical pedagogy, is very, very rarely is it to uh, inspire uh, in the sense that you were just describing, say, you know, passion for aviation or myself with physics and mathematics when I was coming through school. Um, it's much more frequently to inspire radicalization, to bring up radicals who want to transform society. They, they do get very passionate about certain things. The, the students are being taught to be very passionate about the unfairness of the world they live in through a particular lens that believes that it's been contoured in that way. They're taught to be very passionate about being becoming activists to transform society, but unfortunately they're not being taught to learn anything. And that it's necessary to build society. Again, I, I hearken back to the idea that they don't understand what produces a competent hierarchy. They don't understand the legitimacy uh, in, in, in things that, are, that have legitimacy contained within them. Not to say that there's no corruption, but they'll point at some corruption and say the whole thing is corrupt and miss what actually makes the legitimate portions legitimate. And so this is extraordinarily concerning, but even more concerning than that, what we see globally uh, through organizations like the United Nations, there are concerted pushes into education right now. UNESCO, uh, the United Nations, they kind of do this educational, scientific, and cultural organization, uh, UNESCO, uh, is deliberately pushing very hard into education now that sustainability is supposed to be the one magic word for everything. Everything has to be sustainable. And what they're pushing is, is soft skills. Children don't need to learn hard skills. They need to have soft skills. They need to learn social skills. No one knows what the jobs of the future are going to look like. So what we need is children who grow up learning how to interact with people who don't look like them. This is the, the, ex, the excuses that they're giving. The world is becoming more diverse, so they have to be able to deal with cultural differences in the workplace, never mind that they aren't competent to do the job in the workplace. We have to teach them these social skills instead. And the whole thing becomes this kind of psychological operation that's grotesquely teaching them to uh, be compliant, to take orders, to be obedient, to outsource information to experts. What is a woman? I don't know. I have to ask some expert. I can't even answer very basic questions about reality. So, you know, we had our Supreme Court justice, you had your First Minister can't answer basic questions without gathering more information by consulting some expert who will give them three paragraphs of nonsense about why they can't trust their own eyes and ears, but that the party is always right. And they're being conditioned to do this, but also to hand over information, also to sit there and tell what their family life is like, what their home life is like, what their parents are like, how much money they make, what their sexual feelings are like. And often with children, these are the topics that are being pushed into education. And you say, well, Andrew, that's a very United States kind of problem, except perhaps it's in Scotland and perhaps it's not. But it's a UNESCO initiative that began in 2003, which means it's a United Nations program, which means all 193 member states of the United Nations or partner states will eventually be adopting this if they haven't already. So it's coming everywhere. And what you're going to see is a gigantic competency drain you're not going to be developing children who are passionate. You're going to be developing children who are obedient, compliant, and that outsource information to find some expert, which will probably be the AI that they're developing that will tell them the right answers to all their questions. They don't need to know anything. They can just ask the AI. They can go talk to the chat bot. It'll tell them. And they're, they're, they're no longer developing that kind of curiosity that, that passion and enthusiasm for whatever subject and if it's something like aviation where you do have these quite complex circumstances where you have to be quite clever and ingenious what you're going to find is a slow and then fast deterioration things will get worse and worse slowly and then all of a sudden you're going to start to see system collapse because these systems themselves are complex we talked about aviation you know the planes themselves are complex their maintenance is complex the air traffic control is complex I know you all have lots of trains. We're having problems with our trains lately here in the United States. It seems a little mysterious. 
but we uh, those those systems are also very complex. I was in the UK recently in November, and I was riding on the trains, and I was quite alarmed to find out you know you're going quite fast, maybe you know as much as 100 miles per hour, and there's another train that's inches from your window, literal inches. You can feel it when it goes by the other direction. So crossing paths at 200 miles per hour relative to one another, perhaps, or faster. These are complex systems. Getting that a little bit wrong could be an absolute catastrophe for not just economic prospects, but, but people who uh, are risking their lives to systems they believe they can trust and will suddenly, very quickly, find out that the trust has been bottomed out because they are focusing on the incorrect variables, the incorrect approaches to education, the incorrect approaches to um, hiring and deciding how you're going to place people in positions, taking into account things like quotas of, of, of diversity and, and such, and ignoring the fact that, that at the end of the day, competence is what saves lives, competence is what makes the world work. Competence, if anything deserves to be called progress, it comes from dedicated competence. Uh, and the longer we walk down this road, the larger scale the disasters will be. And I, like I said, it will be small at first. There'll be annoyances and there'll be some small tragedies. And then all at once, there will be very large tragedies because the systems themselves, which are complex, will not have people connected to them that have the expertise, the know-how, the institutional knowledge, as it's called, to be able to deal with those systems, to manage those systems. And when the system collapses, whether it's transportation, whether it's aviation, whether it's electricity or energy, uh, you're going to find widespread catastrophe in a very short order that nobody is prepared to deal with. The, uh, the situation you described in America uh, coming from UNESCO is absolutely all across the UK. Uh, I was uh, giving a, a speech outside Parliament uh, a month ago. Uh, there was about 500 people protesting. And it's very interesting because they come from a, a variety of different campaigns, but they came together and and they, there was a kind of common understanding of why we were there, right? And someone expressed it very clearly. We're here to protect our women and our children. Yes, yes, that is absolutely why we're here. And um, in the children, one of the huge aspects that we're there to protect them from is the sex education. It, to, to the point where there's the first minister who's just resigned uh, was getting asked um, when she last had anal sex. And if she wouldn't, uh, if she wouldn't answer the question, uh, the follow-up question is, well, if you won't answer that question, why are you asking her 14-year-old daughter the same question in school, in a questionnaire? Um, the degree to which um, pornography has been pushed, every form of uh, the depraved sexual practice being pushed to the point of it looks like grooming um, of the children, sexualization of the children, uh, has been recognised and there's a pushback, but the pushback isn't from academia, it isn't from politics, it's, it's, been, it's been led by a cab driver, a taxi driver in Glasgow, and it's been led by, well, one or two dissident academics, but very much people on the periphery. Uh, who aren't allowed at the core of, of academic life because their opinions aren't uh, the right ones, uh, as it's seen. And, uh, but the people understand this is harmful. The people can see it, and they're not accepting it. So that, that conflict over sex ed, for, as one example, is absolutely happening all across the UK. You mentioned the other word uh, during uh, June the last segment there, that the Scottish government build the policy around, and that sustainability. You just Could you just expand us a little on that one as well? Oh my. Sustainability, I did a podcast uh, maybe almost a year ago, I guess, uh, that I, I, I titled the podcast that sustainability is the tyranny of the 21st century. Sustainability, and there is a very complicated, it's not that complicated, but there's a very long academic argument that I could give uh, that explains how as Marxism gave way in the later part of the, the second half of the 20th century to what we might call neo-Marxism, uh, that there was a huge focus on the, the reason that, that capitalism ultimately fails because they were, they're dealing. Who are, what are these people dealing with? Let me back up for just a moment. Uh, they're dealing with the fact in their own words, and I'm talking about leading Marxists of the 20th, later half of the 20th century or middle of the 20th century, like Max Horkheimer, 
and uh, Herbert Marcuse. But what were they dealing with? And in their own words, they said, well, capitalism delivers the goods. Capitalism allows people to build a better life. Karl Marx believed that capitalism would immiserate the worker, but it actually allows him to build a better life. Marcuse said, of course, that these people are um, euphoric in misery, that they actually are miserable, even though they love their lives and they work hard and they're proud of you know, what they are able to eke out, you know, a decent life, good, solid middle-class existence. Uh, they're satisfied with that and they're missing the fact that we could have a communist utopia uh, because they're happy with it. Because capitalism, that he said, delivers the goods. It actually works. And so this is a problem for Marxists because who on earth would abandon a system that actually works? And so what they said is, well, the real problem with capitalism is it's not sustainable. It's an infinite uh, progress into eventual collapse. And so while kind of ironically, um, Karl Marx was extraordinarily against the ideas of Thomas Malthus, who believed that there would be the overpopulation of the planet would eventually cause a system collapse and everybody would die. Uh, so we have to control the population kind of quite brutally. Uh, Karl Marx was actually very against Thomas Malthus. By the time we get to these 20th century, second half of the 20th century neo-Marxists, they start to repeat the arguments of Thomas Malthus and integrate them in. That what's going to happen is capitalism, you see, will, will satisfy all your basic needs. And so kind of believing that there are then these kind of higher order needs. Well, now you have all of your food, you have your shelter, you have you know basic security. That's all taken care of. Now we have to go up to a higher level of need. And so, you know, you need your stuff. You need a comfortable couch. You need nice clothing. You need this. So now you have this next level of needs or wants. And those wants, he argued, become needs. You learn not to be able to live without having your creature comforts. And then when those are satisfied by capitalism, there will be a new level of needs being produced. People are going to need, you know, trifles. They're going to need toys. They're going to need things that amuse them. They're going to have a new layer and those they won't know how to live without and so you have this infinite ladder of capitalism producing and extracting resources and exploiting people to give them to give people more and more and more and more as he calls them false needs which need to be distinguished from their true needs which are their basic biological needs and as such capitalism will eventually outstrip itself and cause a gigantic collapse uh, of society because it's not sustainable so the entire push, and this is headed at the United Nations as well with their Agenda 2030, that sounds, everybody says that's a conspiracy theory. You should go to their website. I don't know why the UN.org website would be promoting such a gigantic conspiracy theory in giant bold letters on every page that's called Agenda 2030 with its 17 sustainable development goals. But we're all supposed to become completely compliant to those. Education is supposed to be completely remade. UNESCO has published multiple documents uh, our Department of Education and, and Teachers Unions in the United States have echoed UNESCO, cited UNESCO on this point, and said we need to make education all about teaching the children to achieve the 17 sustainable development goals of Agenda 2030 as fast as possible. Every higher education institute in the world needs to be dedicated to su achieving sustainability and sustainability only immediately. These are the things that they're putting out. And what it is, is that it's an attempt to say that we're going to massively control the outputs of capitalism. Capitalism allows you to make a better life, but the problem is it's not sustainable. So we have to reinvent capitalism to become sustainable capitalism. Now, what Marcuse compared that to is the inability of communist regimes like the Soviet Union and some of the things in South America and China, they weren't productive. They weren't able to actually produce the goods in his language. And so you have this problem that you don't have productive socialism and you do have unsustainable capitalism, if you could somehow mix those together into a productive socialism or a sustainable capitalism, which are two sides of the same coin, he's not explicit about this. This is my derivation of his second chapter of One Dimensional Man in ninth chapter, if you want to know where I got these ideas. Uh, if you could somehow mix the two together and you could, you could solve the production problem in socialism, make it productive, by maybe injecting a little bit of market logic into it, and you could somehow get capitalism, you could get the people to give up on the idea that they need more and better lives, that they would, he actually says, sacrifice much of their quality of life, uh, then you can actually have a sustainable capitalistic model or a productive socialistic model, which are essentially the same thing. And that could become the new paradigm, which would be on the road to the alleged communist utopia, where we're no longer euphoric in misery, apparently. 
but rather we're actually living our best lives now and into the future. So sustainability is the justification for abject tyranny. And the people who get, do you get to decide what's sustainable? No, you don't. Does your government get to decide what's sustainable? Only kind of, because there are these folks, they meet in places like Davos occasionally in Brussels, occasionally in New York or Washington DC, who come together for United Nations meetings, World Economic Forum meetings, IMF meetings, International Monetary Fund meetings. They have these big meetings, sometimes directly in conjunction with the CCP, which is um, not subject to any of these sustainability rules. And that turns out to be where the people running this invest their money as a result, uh, which is treason in my opinion. Uh, these people are, are meeting and deciding for you as what they call stakeholder representatives, as a council of stakeholders. What you need to be able to have, you know, a proper sustainable life. I just saw a headline this morning somebody sent me, and I haven't gone and chased this down, but this is a UK headline, and it said that we should be looking at the rationing of food and petroleum and gas and so on and other basic goods that were used during World War II so we can reach the sustainable development goals. So when you look at the very austere rationing, wartime rationing, this was to defeat the, the war against the climate, apparently, to defeat climate change. Rather than supposing that the problem is real and significant, which I don't necessarily believe is as significant as they say, and it may not even be real, I'm not sure. Uh, I no longer trust these narratives. But supposing that it's everything that they say it is, what, what would be needed is massive spurring of innovation, massive spurring of competition, massive spurring of the ability to, to, to find technological solutions and to, to generate you know, benefit and profit off of those rather than severe austerity measures. So when, when you now have publications suggesting quite literally that you need to go back to World War II austerity measures, rationing in order to achieve sustainability, not to mention these 15 minute cities or zones or whatever, I was just in Oxford, uh, like I said, in November, this is, I was horrified by what I saw, not just the zero emission zones and the, you know, the lines being drawn to create the 15 minute cities, but also the trans flag flying off the top of the colleges, you know, 1200 year old building with a trans flag flying off the top. I was aghast. Um, it's really uh, a very concerning circumstance that people are not at all aware of. Sustainability sounds really good. Nobody wants to be unsustainable, but that doesn't mean that we should want to follow the path of some tyrants ideas of what will make the world sustainable based on models and theories and actually just kind of their own justifications for power, I, I think. So sustainability is, in fact, in my opinion, the central and most dangerous word of at least the first half of this century. And people are still having quite the large love affair with it rather than seeing it for what it is. The uh, British experience of rationing, of course, was it was much worse after the war than it was during it because socialism. Um, but moving on, um, in one of the particular Scottish aspects of this has been the so-called Scottish National Party, though you could argue with all of those words, um, have embraced woke ideology. And they're pointing at the English and saying, well, they're not as woke as us. We are, we're, we're more pure. We are, we're, we're, we're better. Um, we need a national divorce. And the sensible part of Scotland has said, no, 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 we don't, we don't. And we certainly don't want a national divorce if we're going to be on your side of the fence because we don't like what you're pushing. So that fight goes on in Scotland. I was somewhat surprised to see that a, a, a broadly similar struggle is starting up in, uh, in the United States. Uh, you're also talking about a national divorce, is, is that correct? Well, some people are. I think that these people are um, not paying attention to what's happening in the world. They don't understand. I think they are frustrated and they want to escape the pressures of a communist provocation or a neo-communist, if we need to be more clear, provocation into their lives. If you want to call it fascist instead, I don't really care the splitting hairs as to whether it's communist or fascist they're both tyrannies neither need to be but they want to they want to get away from those provocations and they imagine that they can somehow separate and that 
tyrannical totalitarian governments that are making a bid to conquer the world will leave them alone or that they can defend themselves better against those things. But what we're seeing is a push for divided, uh, d divided polities. We, they, they want to divide because divided is easier to conquer. Even if all we ended up with is smaller entities, those so smaller entities are economically weaker, they have fewer resources, they're easier to isolate or, or control, uh, we would find this to be the case. Uh, the United Nations, for example, would probably immediately declare if there was a national divorce, I don't know what would happen in Scotland, but in the United States, that rogue secessionists reinventing the Civil War, who are a bunch of racist Confederates, are trying to do it again, that they need to be controlled. And by the way, there's a gigantic nuclear arsenal in the United States, and that's a existential risk for the whole planet, justifying massive peacekeeping forces jointly between the United Nations and probably CCP, which Canada, I'm certain, would allow in graciously to come from our entire gigantic northern border and start trying to secure the United States. I think they imagine that because many military installations are in states that are currently coded as conservative in the United States, that um, the U.S. government would allow those things to just stay there or that <laughs> somehow they would be uh, able to keep those things there, you know, on the possession is nine-tenths of the law kind of rationale. Uh, where we turn out not to be Afghanistan, and there's no particular advantage to China or other interests that are against the West to leaving military stuff in, say, Texas. So that probably is not what would happen. Um, it's a catastrophe in the making. It, it's actually a very, I understand the wanting to get away but there is no peaceable thing here. There is no attempt at peace between any nations. This is a global attempt to control every nation. And so if you split off and make your nation smaller, it's a global attempt to control that and they will have even more levers with which to do it. And I, I sincerely mean that. They will immediately say this is a neo-Confederate uprising. There's an attempt to reinvent the civil war. They just wanna have slaves. They will say these things. They will say them immediately. But now they're nuclear armed and we have to deal with this catastrophe at a full scale global response, massive sanctioning, massive occupation if possible. And this will happen within us uh, within months. Supposing I'm completely wrong and naive, like just making things up or paranoid, um, the turmoil will be sufficient to allow China to act globally however it wants with no ability for any coordinated response. So you're going to watch China start taking military action wherever it wants to in the world with basically nobody to do anything about it if the United States is thrown into that kind of turmoil. I think they believe that we can have some kind of an amicable, amicable divorce that the red states and blue states, which doesn't even make sense because if you look, every large population center in the United States, every city is heavily left-leaning versus every rural area tends to be right-leaning, um, which it turns out that doesn't cut cleanly on on state borders or state boundaries. Uh, this this is a farcical concept that we could somehow cut this up and then people would just move to the right side. I guess maybe we would build a wall or a fence or you know go back to East Germany, West Germany kind of mentality. I don't know what they think is going to happen, but I can guarantee you that they are not about to leave well enough alone. Uh, they are absolutely not about to leave well enough alone uh, with with anybody who decides to break off and take a stand. Uh, it, it would be much smarter to start using legal mechanisms, lawfare, politics, et cetera, public demonstration to start demanding that we take the people who are doing the provocations out of power that have influence over our countries. To close, I, I would like to um, ask you to, to comment on one aspect of this um, the struggle you're engaged in. I see you a lot speaking in organizations like sovereign nations uh, with a, uh, you know, sharing, sharing the speaking with, with a bunch of Christian guys and speaking to a largely Christian audience. I find this very interesting. Um, uh, you've come from, you, you, you came from the sort of new atheist movement. So you, you weren't coming into Christianity as, as a believer. Uh, I'm not quite sure where you're standing on the whole belief thing at the moment, but you're certainly seeing um, what you would term evangelical Christianity or uh, that 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 part of Christianity that maybe still has some sense of itself um, being faced with these challenges. 
been faced with the intellectual attack and you're watching them formulate the defence and formulate the argument. So I'm very interested in your view of what what would you call it? Um, conservative Christianity? It's not mainstream. It's very difficult to put labels on these things. But if you call it evangelical Protestantism, say, because that's mostly that, I think, uh, and you're watching how they are reacting to these these challenges and to the to the the new religion of Marxism, neo Marxism that's been pushed pushed by the state, pushed by the education authorities, pushed by the activists. How do you see them responding? And and essentially, what have you learned about about evangelical Christianity as you've watched them under this uh, pressure? And sadly, the main thing I've learned is how political they are uh, with each other. Um, there, there's so much jockeying for position, uh, you know, within kind of their political ranks, organizations like the Southern Baptist Convention or the Presbyterian Church of America. Uh, they're overwhelmingly political. They're very catty. They tend to not recognize, unfortunately, um, that they, you know, that they are a potentially very powerful cultural force, but that when they speak too thoroughly in their uh, kind of Christian dial, dial what's the word I'm looking for, their, their, their Christian lexicon, their, their framing of every issue, that uh, they lose a great portion of the middle of the country that could very easily be rallied, not just to the broader cause against neo-Marxism in the, in, in the country, but also that could be rallied even through the Great Commission toward uh, sympathetic views toward uh, Protestant Christianity, that which they believe they are to spread around the earth. And so it's a little bit frustrating to watch this play out. They are also like the conservatives that are frustrated and being tempted into um, kind of what I view as traps, such as a national divorce argument, to being also pulled into you know large arguments and debates about whether we should be trying to reestablish the United States as an explicitly Christian nation, um, which is also frustrating. Uh, but on the other hand, they have a set of tools that if they would use them and use them properly, and maybe it's not my place as an outsider to tell them how to do that, but if they would focus on this, they have a set of tools that can refute and negate Marxism in a way that nothing in the so-called secular world can possibly do. Uh, they have uh, a set of virtues. They have a worldview based on those virtues. And if they leaned into those virtues instead of kind of um, performative displays of how virtuous they believe themselves to be, I think, you know, temperance, forgiveness, meekness in the sense of being willing to stay calm and quiet, but to do the right thing and to show up and do the right thing sanely and sensibly, uh, to drive also the money changers from the temple, as it were, to flip the table when it's necessary, um, to stand for the the absolute authority of the truth wherever that truth is is to be found. If they would actually stand in these virtues and proclaim these virtues, I think that what we would find is they would be a very powerful and useful uh, bulwark. Unfortunately, they're also not just with their own politics and their own um, tendency to fall into these kind of right-wing traps, they're also unfortunately heavily infested with, with woke ideology as well. I mean, their largest seminaries in the United States are all teaching critical race theory explicitly. The Southern Baptist Convention in 2019 brought critical race theory in explicitly as a analytical tool for scripture. Um, so they're deeply infested with these problems as well, which of course makes the idea that they're somehow now gonna take power and rule uh, to fix the problem, frankly, laughable. They can't even clean up their own denominations, much less a country. Uh, so it's it, it's a it's a complicated issue. But like I said, they have the virtues and the values upon which, when tempered with reason, when tempered with with the fruits of the English and Scottish Enlightenment, uh, actually provide the pathway to the best refutations of this ideology that could possibly exist. So I would hope they can discipline themselves to focus on on those aspects and, and not get pulled off in these these unfortunate directions. Uh, James, thank you very much for talking to me today. It's been fascinating listening to you. I hope we can do this again in, not, in the not too distant future. Um, until then, if people want to find out more about your work and support your work, 
Uh, the best way for them to do that is what? Uh, the website is newdiscourses.com. There's a support tab if that's something that you're you're moved to do. I never ask. Uh, but there should be more than enough resources to get you started on that website. It's just actually an unbelievable amount. Uh, you can buy the books, Race Marxism or Marxification of Education, if you're interested in those issues. Uh, and you can follow me on social media, which is a bit of a wild ride, at Conceptual James. Yes, it is indeed. Um, it's a it's a first class website, and the, the YouTube support for this is excellent as well. So I would encourage people to seek that out. Uh, James, until next time, thank you very much.